Welcome to the second season of the PEBC podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I will be hosting our series on phenomenal teaching. In season two, we will take a deeper dive into how the strands of the PEBC teaching framework of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding for each and every student. I'm honored to share these conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers with you. Thank you so much for listening in. So here we are, 36 years after the publication of Dr. Brian Camborn's The Whole Story, and the conditions of learning are still relevant and finding their way into the hands, hearts, and minds of teachers with the recent publication of Made for Learning by Deborah Crouch and Brian Camborn. I have to confess that for many years, my colleagues have teased me about my deep affinity for Dr. Camborn's theory of learning, and they consistently point out that all roads lead to Camborn for Michelle. In fact, I have used the conditions of learning as a seminal text in the graduate courses I have taught, as a scaffold for crafting professional learning for adults, and as a framework for developing classroom practice. I consider this original research as a foundational underpinning that has shaped my beliefs and impacts my work with teachers and students. The constructivist nature of the model also aligns closely with the work of the PEBC and the PEBC teaching framework. So it is with great pleasure that I have the opportunity to connect virtually with Brian and Deborah to talk about their new book and the ways in which the conditions for learning are still revolutionary. If you are unfamiliar with Dr. Camborn's theory of learning and the conditions for learning, you can download a brief explanation via the link in the show notes. Brian and Deborah, it is such an honor to have you on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. We are going to jump right in and start talking about the conditions for learning. What are they and how are they still relevant today? Deborah, I'd love to begin with you. Do you mind telling us a little bit about the conditions and what are they and, and how do they work to support student understanding? I'd be happy to do that because I'm I'm um, also, I'm right there with you that they have been such a... Um, a core part of the thinking that I have done since I became a teacher. So I'm, I'm really excited. So um, when I think about the conditions of learning, in a nutshell, I think of them as the why behind what we do. So they're why we do what we do in the way that we do. And that's, that's really in a nutshell what it's about. So, you know, as a teacher, I think we get so much information about what to do and how to do it. And, you know, for example, we talk about making sure we have read alouds and oh, we have to have turn in talks. And, you know, we get all of these ideas and all of them, we get the how, we get the what. And but they all come with this caveat that you have to adjust this based on your students. You know, you always hear that caveat. And what I think about is that the way that we go about making those decisions and those adjustments is really you know, that's the part we never seem to get to. But to me, that's the part that the conditions of learning give me a way of thinking and a way of reasoning my way and making decisions about how I'm going to adjust my my instruction to make sure that it's fitting for the learners that sit in front of me. You know, they give me um, a language in which to think and consider um, and help me really to keep children at the center of what we do. So with that in mind, 
to think about these eight conditions is really, um, you know, it, we, we have chapters devoted to them. So I'm going to try and give you just in a, just in a small amount, because I know we don't have a long time on this uh, podcast, right? <laughs> and Deborah, like, what's so interesting <laughs> is that you're right, like there are books and books written about the conditions. So I think the overview of the eight will really contextualize for us, but yeah. I just really want to pause and let everyone absorb what you just said. Because I thought that was so beautiful. Like there are all these things that we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to make sure we have the turn and talk and we have a certain amount of time for reading. But what you're talking about is is deeper than that. And it sits below that level and it really impacts our instructional decision-making abilities. And so I just thought that was beautiful. And I just wanted to just reiterate that idea that the conditions are, they sit below some of that and they really then support those decisions. Mm-hmm. And and so so the eight conditions that Brian identified in his theory of learning, which I just still to this day just think has to be some of the most amazing thinking work that ever happened in education. Um, they really are describing um, this environment, this physical, social, emotional, intellectual environment that learning is occurring in. So um, in the visual that we designed for the book, we put engagement at the center because really when we think about all the work that we do as teachers, you know, the immersion, the demonstrations, which are two of the conditions, when we put those into place, unless engagement is also there and present, we're not going to, kids are not going to learn from what it is that we're doing as teachers. So engagement, the thing I think that's so powerful in Brian's model is that he describes them through this idea of principles, that there are principles that are in place that um, are these internal almost stances with a learner. So the first one is that the learner sees themselves as a doer of the behavior. So whatever it is that we're learning, that learner sees themselves as a reader, as a writer, or, you know, a mathematician, whatever it is that they're, you know, that they're learning. Um, And they understand how, what it is they're learning has a purpose in their lives. How is it going to benefit them? Um, They are free from uh, any fear of making errors. So any kind of, you know, trying things out um, is part of the learning process, right? So, children have that freedom or the learner has that freedom from any kind of fear of making uh, any, you know, mistakes or errors. And we'll talk about those words in a little bit. Um, And one of the other pieces that's so crucial is that relationship that the learner has to those people who are providing those demonstrations. And that can be an adult that can also be other children. Um, And so one of the things I think that's been so challenging in this environment, um, in this you know COVID world that we're living in, is when we're teaching in a virtual space, it's really hard to think about engagement because we're so our environment is so different. Um, but if you have those that understanding about what engagement is about here, it really doesn't matter if you're virtual or if you are in person, you're going to be thinking about how am I supporting that learner to see themselves in this role. And so there are, um, as I mentioned, immersion and demonstration, which provide the, you know, the opportunities to witness what it is that you're learning. And then there are five other conditions that Brian identified that make engagement more likely to occur. Expectations, um, responsibility, you know, making sure that we're offering um, children this opportunity to try out what it is that we're that we're wanting them to learn um, that they have lots of employment um, which is the term we use for practice and then two that to me are always central um, one is approximation which is making sure that um, 
kids are trying things out as where where they come from, where they are, what their understandings of what it is that they're you know trying out to learn, um, and then the response from our from us is so crucial that we're supporting kids to understand um, what it is that they're that they're trying, that they're attempting, and how it supports them. So all of these all these conditions, we while we tease them out and talk about them separately, they really function in in a real synergistic way in a, in an environment creating this tone. Um, for learning, which is so powerful. And it, yeah, absolutely. And getting back to that idea that learners must be doers. And so in order for learners to see themselves as doers of whatever it is they're learning, if we can meet those conditions, then that engagement is heightened and then learning is heightened. And then we can think about remembering and retention and reapplication in really authentic ways. Yeah. So love to hear from you, Brian. We're thinking about, you know, talking about your conditions for learning. And you and I recently had a conversation just about the the universal nature of those conditions of learning and how they are really still relevant today. So I'd love to hear from you. When you think about the theory and you think about those conditions for learning, how are they still universal or how are they universal? Um. I think they're universal because they are the, so far, the best explanation for how very young learners learn something as complex as the language of the culture into which they're born. Um, I, uh, since I first published the whole story way back in 1988, um, I've kept a little file of people from other disciplines outside of education who have written to me and have said, um, I really I really like the way your conditions apply to my context. Um, I've had a, an aerodynamic engineer from a university who said he changed all of his um, approaches to teaching his graduate students after reading the whole story. I, I never imagined someone like that would bother to read the whole story. I've had um, um, messages from mathematicians, um, from a business person. Um, one guy wrote to me and said, I am now the maitre d' in my parents' very um, upmarket restaurant. And he said, I started as a water boy. And I was immersed in all of the intricacies of running a restaurant like the one that my parents owned. They they made me start at the bottom, and I watched and I um, and I learned from being a water boy what all of the other um, employees uh, did and what the expectations were. So. Um, I've got a whole range of those kinds of responses which really reinforced for me and reassured me that um, the conditions that I identified by looking at how kids learn to talk really were designed by nature or designed by evolution or designed by the director of the universe, whomsoever she might be, to ensure that um, 
our species learns to make meaning using symbols as easily and quickly as possible because that ability to make meaning using symbols is what gives our species um, its dominance on on the, you know, on Earth today, and um, uh, that's the message I've been trying to get across. That um, it is universal because just about every complex learning experience that we uh, go through and we're successful at underpinning it is the mix of these conditions that I, I identified in my very early research. And I, I have to say, um, when I wrote it up, it was very academic and I depended on people like Deborah to help me turn that academic knowledge, academic language, into language and um, and uh, into language that was much more accessible for classroom teachers. Um, I have a tendency to pontificate and I have to be pulled back every now and then and uh, and let the more practical um, users of my theory uh, tell you how they did it. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, thank you. That is a wonderful explanation of that universality. And I think we will have Deborah chime in. Deborah, when you think about that idea of practical application, how have the conditions of learning impacted your work as an educator? Oh, wow. So, you know, Brian and I began the book, or we began Made for Learning by telling our stories. And, you know, I was that classroom teacher who um, I can remember standing one day in my own classroom thinking, somebody's going to come in here and figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I just, I did not feel prepared. I didn't feel like I knew how to make decisions. I mean, I really, now I know that's what it was about. Um, I kept thinking it was, I was going to find this magic bullet that was going to, you know, if I just do this, this will make things, these work. And I was really fortunate that my first year of teaching, I read the whole story and it, it was, it was that, you know, those subtle enlightenments that you have, they're not those mad, huge ahas, but they're those, those subtle, um, understandings that suddenly you keep returning to them. You know, you, they, they start becoming that core that you go back to. Um, and that's what the conditions ended up being for me. It's, it, it gave me a framework for how to look at what was happening in my classroom so that, you know, uh, you know, I was a kindergarten teacher for a number of years so that when, you know, when my little ones would, you know, they would write the word cat and they would put C and T rather than focusing on, what wasn't there, you know, that vowel in the middle, I would focus on what they had had done and, and notice that, look at this approximation that they're making and what that tells me about them as learners and what they're attending to and, and how this showed me that they were, that they did see themselves as doers. They were these, these communicators, uh, you know, and so it gave me a stance to, um, to really, honor what what was coming from these little kids and stuff and then as I began to work with adults you know as a you know as a coach and a consultant and one of the things I find is that you know many teachers expect someone who's coaching them to come in and tell them what they're doing right or what they're doing wrong and and that's that's not really what learning's about learning is about 
you know, what are your intentions? What are you trying out? And so those, it, it guides the kinds of questions that I'm or in conversations that I'm having with teachers. You know, what are your intentions? What did you want to happen? And if it doesn't happen, well, let's think about what else we might do. Like, how do you think it might work if we did this, you know, in this way? Let's see what effect we get with kids um, so that it becomes more about the decisions that we make, not about right or wrong, not the checklist um, kind of approach to teaching. So when you think about that framework for you as a practitioner in a classroom or as an instructional coach or as a consultant, it sounds like it has given you also some language to name and to identify what can we put in place to ensure Mm -hmm. or heighten learning. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, is the thing that, that is sometimes missing. Like when we, when we talk about our practice, you know, for example, with read aloud or, you know, in turn and talks, as I mentioned earlier, you know, what we often hear is, okay, you should have three turn in talks or no, we want to read it all the way through first and then, and then have a talk. And so what we have to have is a, a way of, of thinking about this and a way of, of articulating for ourselves as well as, as with others about why we would do something in a certain way. Well, I, I think I'm going to stop right here because I want to notice if children are attending to certain things. And one of the things that we know is that if kids talk about their thinking, this is going to really support them to problem solve things out and, you know, and hear different perspectives. And so all of those kinds of decisions, I have to, as a teacher, be able to describe for myself, you know, first before I'm putting them out there so that as I'm sitting and thinking through and visualizing my own lesson occurring in front of me, um, that I have language to think about that. And then, you know, in my work in leadership is, okay, I have to have a way of explaining why I'm doing what I'm doing, because that is the question I always hear from teachers. When I do a demonstration lesson, for example, they'll say, well, why did you do that? Or what? Well, when you did this, this happened. And why did you do that? Or how did you know to do that? And I always come back to the conditions of learning and, and that it does give me a framework and language to explain why I do what I do and the way that I do it. Yeah. It's, and it, I mean, it's, it's practice. This is not something that, you know, you read the book and you suddenly have this, right? This right. is that, this is that way of, of coming to understand and, and really figure out what your belief system is. Like as you started us off thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that idea around, it's a kind of the craft and science of teaching. Like we mm-hmm. have the science through the theory that Dr. Camborn has developed and which has evolved a little bit over time, but then we also have that craft. And I think that's that decision-making that teachers employ and that teachers consider all of the variables and all the factors and the needs and the assets of their students and then start to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And the, and the conditions of learning can give you that framework, that, that, that language that helps you to begin to see your classroom in a different way, see the learning that's occurring in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to turn it over to Brian. I'd love to hear a little bit about how has this theory and or how has your thinking changed over the years? Because the whole story was published in 1988. So obviously you've had probably thousands and hundreds of thousands of teachers interact with you, interact with the theory. And I'm sure that has caused you to synthesize and for your thinking to change or to evolve. So do you mind sharing with us, what are you thinking now or how has your thinking changed over time? Um, when I 
first published the whole story in 1988. Um, I did get some very good feedback from teachers that um, they got it and they really understood it. And so I uh, asked them for the privilege to observe them putting it into practice. And over the next uh, 15 or 16 years, I spent hundreds of hours um, engaging in what researchers call naturalistic inquiry, which is a kind of non-intrusive way of trying to understand how things work. It's a kind of classroom anthropology. I spent hundreds of hours observing and interacting with these teachers who told me that they understood the conditions and were having success in putting them into place. And I found over the years as I observed them, they fell into two groups. There was one group who really did get them and who changed their classroom behaviour and changed the whole culture of the classrooms that they were creating. And then there was a smaller group who claimed that they understood the conditions of learning. But when I watched them in action, it was obvious to me that they were trying really hard, but they couldn't quite get it all into place. And that, that puzzled me for years. Um, I went back through my data. I went back through the recordings I'd made of myself talking with them or interacting with them to see what it was that um, I'd possibly screwed up on. What, what had I left out? What, what, what was going on here? Why did they say they could do it when it was obvious that they couldn't? And it was then that I became aware that, um, that they were prisoners of a discourse, a way of using language and thinking about teaching that was the result of all of the conditioning they'd had from traditional psychological approaches to learning. Um, and in particular, they were prisoners of what um, some linguists today call conceptual metaphors or deep metaphors. And I suppose the best example of it is um, they tended to think of learning or knowledge as some kind of stuff, some kind of reified um, stuff that existed independently of the human mind. And like all other physical stuff, it had weight, it could be measured, it could be reordered, it could be um, cut down into smaller packages, it could be transmitted from one place to another, just like all stuff can be. And I realised that their way of thinking about teaching and learning was, um, was one that they'd been immersed in for all of their professional lives and which virtually forced them to think of learning and teaching as a process of transmitting stuff or organising stuff or sequencing stuff. And I realised that I had to help them change their metaphors. Um, how do you, how can we talk about knowledge and learning without calling it or thinking of it as some kind of 
stuff that can be moved from one place to another. And so I began to develop what I call the discourse of meaning making, where I worked with teachers and asked them to explore the language that they used as they taught. And we would try to identify the underlying metaphors that they were employing. And, um, uh, you know, I started fairly simply. Um, One group of teachers I worked with recently, I said, let's see if we can just change one form of language that you use constantly. Uh, Let's stop referring to what you ask kids to do in school as work, because work involves it's a chore and it's something that has to be done. And uh, I'm as guilty as any of you, I said. I, I always used to say to my children, get on with your work, or that's good work. Or if you work hard, I'll give you an early mark. You can get out of school early. So this group of teachers said, oh, yeah, we can do that. That's easy. Um, very few of them found that they could do it. After half an hour of really um, trying to be metacognitively aware of the language they were using, they admitted that they couldn't eliminate the word work from their vocabulary. And that made me realise there was a whole lot of um, ways of using language. And my my friend um, and colleague, Peter Johnson, uh, mm-hmm. understands this as well. Um, the way we use language, the discourse that we use in the classroom is going to um, affect how our learners respond and how they go about learning themselves. So I began trying to get my uh, teachers that I worked with to think about, instead of saying today we're going to learn mathematics, say instead today we are going to make meaning using the ideas of mathematics. Or instead of saying today we're going to learn about biology, we're going to make meaning the way biologists do. I kept getting them to try to emphasise this notion that as a learner, you are expected to make meaning. And um, that's a slow process. It takes a long time for teachers to overcome the the years of of, um, immersion in psychological discourse. Um, But, you know, I I think it's the place to start. Um, We have to change our discourse and we need to teach the kids in our class to use the same discourse. And uh, that's where I think um, uh, we need to go. And, And that's what Deborah and I do in the book. We try to help teachers understand the role that these kinds of metaphors can play in the culture of learning you create in your classroom. I think that's so interesting because you could look just at the conditions on a surface level and Mm -hmm. you can see how we might make a lot of attempts to apply those to our teaching if it's for children or for adults and some of the examples that you mentioned earlier. But if our stance isn't towards meaning making or if our stance isn't towards developing the idea of learners, I can see how that mismatch or how that 
the result wouldn't be the depth that you were expecting. Mm-hmm. So I think that brings us to the book. Um, you know, Made for Learning is beautiful. It is gorgeous. The partnership between you and Deborah and just reading it, you can you can hear your words coming to life from both of you. And so Deborah, I'm wondering if you might, you know, shed a little light on the concept of the mismatches between theory and practice that you and Brian write about and talk about. Cause I really think it elevates what Brian has shared with us in terms of really having this language around meaning making and that depth of what is understanding and what does it really mean to be a learner? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, just to build off what Brian said, you know, one of the, um, one of the uh, mismatches that we talk about in the book is that, that idea of doing versus using um, and how, you know, we often talk about doing strategies um, whereas we really know it's about using strategies, right? Right. That, yeah. It's amazing how that one word shift can sometimes make a huge difference for us because instead of us thinking I'm going to do guided reading today, or I'm doing read aloud today or whatever else, you know, where I'm doing turn and talk, it's how am I using turn and talk to support my kids to have discussions that extend their own meaning making, so that they're interacting with others and hearing different ideas. And so we begin, I think just shifting that one word sometimes takes us down a thought path that we wouldn't go to if we just said, well, I'm doing turn and talk right now. It, it, and so sometimes it's as subtle as that one word shift. Um, another um, uh, one of the mismatches we talk about um, in the book is that notion of, of book levels. Um, you know, I mean, we have, oh, you know, levels, that's everything's about leveled. And I've, I've begun to think of there's, you know, there's leveled books, which, you know, powerful, wonderful tools. Um, And then suddenly, we're leveling everything, you know, I'm sorry, wonder was not written to be leveled, you know, those, those kinds of books, (laughs) those, those don't have that same kind of thing. So I, I think of those as books that have been leveled, right, as opposed to leveled books. But we see a lot of times we take a, a concept like this that's designed to support teachers to understand um, and have some way of talking about complexity in text, right, across grade levels Absolutely. across this range. So nothing wrong with that. But suddenly it becomes the way we organize our classroom libraries. It becomes the way kids describe themselves. I'm, I'm a level D reader or I'm a level F reader. And, and suddenly it becomes an identity for kids, you know, and and the way that they know they, if they're making meaning or not is because they're reading in a particular level. And so it's, it's one of those ideas where the concept gets misconstrued, if you will, because we're coming at it from that transmission model. It's all mm-hmm. about the teaching. It's not about the kind of meaning making and learning that we're trying to support through using that tool, right? We're doing the tool, not using the tool. So those are a couple of, of the mismatch examples that we've, that we've included in the book, but we have a, a whole number of those. And I was so excited that our, at, at first we weren't sure about how to, how to tackle that because it, it, it's one of those things where sometimes we need those concrete examples, don't we, just to help us to begin to see what it means to take something that is a complex theory like Brian's, but that is not it's not a challenging theory to put into place when you really begin to dig in and understand it and begin to shift your language. And that's something that I think is really, um, it's what makes the conditions of learning, I think, be that kind of theory that once it's, it's part of your DNA, it doesn't go away. Like you don't shift off of 
the conditions of learning. Like you don't find yet another theory that replaces it. It just deepens as you uh, look at everything else that goes on in education. Absolutely. And I think about those mismatches and, you know, in reading the book, thinking about this idea of constructivism and that learners are constructing understanding and learners are constructing meaning. And so the conditions for learning really provide that context for that to happen. And so in order for that to really come to life, we do have to be mindful of what are some of the tools and what are some of the practices. I love how you said we're doing turn and talks. Actually, we're engaging in conversation so that we can explore an idea. And I think about that in terms of approximation and that expectation that learners can make meaning on their own through discourse and through conversation. But as you pointed out, we could also just do a turn and talk mm. and, yeah. and leave it at that. So yeah. I think that brings us to kind of where we are right now. I mean, this is such an interesting time in education. No one in a million years would have ever predicted that the majority of children, especially in the United States and across the world, would be out of their classrooms for almost 12 months or in and out of classrooms for 12 months because of the COVID pandemic. So when we think about the conditions for learning, and we think about your work in Made for Learning, how are these conditions still or even more relevant than they ever were before? I'd love to hear from both of you, just that kind of off-the-cuff thinking, like, why do they still matter, or why might they matter more now than ever before? So, Brian, you want me to tackle this one first? Okay. <laughs> so... You know, I think, right, you know, before we went into all of this lockdown stuff, I, I would read articles that would talk about that the computer was going to replace the teacher. <laughs> and now we laugh at that because, you know, you think, really, uh, I don't think we'll ever be having that discussion again. Um, but, you know, one of the things is we're all, you know, in this challenging time is we keep hearing about learning loss. And I just, that breaks my heart because I think it, it, it starts putting us in that place of looking at kids in a deficit model. And when, if you, if you look and you think about the conditions of learning and you examine this time through that lens, I think the condition that, that comes out first for me, because if we think about, you know, teachers have been providing demonstrations, they've, you know, we've, you know, had learning and we've, you know, certainly done on an awful lot of approximating every one of us, you know, Yes, we have. Lots of approximations here. Um, But I think the the condition for me that is sometimes uh, that has has been coming up in my head as a wobbly condition right now is that notion of employment. Like I I really think a lot of what we're seeing is that we're just out of practice on things. You know, my mother who I'm from Tennessee and my mother would um, make biscuits. You know, that was our big thing growing up. And so when I was in college and would come home, she would tell me how out of practice she was on making biscuits because that was always my request for breakfast. Um, And one of the things I think about right now is that our kids are out of practice with books. Like that's, I think, been one of our um, biggest challenges right now is how have we gotten books into kids' hands? We've we've made progress with with digital books. You know, every company is now digital. But we haven't gotten print copies. We haven't gotten, you know, good hard copies of books into kids' hands because that's been so challenging, you know, and I totally understand why we've had to make some of those decisions. Um, but I really think it's, it's, that's a piece of what we're seeing is that our kids haven't had books. They haven't had 
you know, the people they can have the conversations with, because it's still a very different, you know, we can still see each other on the screen, but it's so different when we're sitting beside each other and we, and we can read body language. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing is just the effects of being out of practice right now for what we're doing. And I, um, I listened to um, your podcast with Lester Lamanac and he was talking about, we're all just going to have to honor that we've all been through a real trauma right here. And that, what we're going to have to do is take kids where they are and we're going to have to take teachers where they are, you know, because as we're coming back in, it's not going back to normal. I think we've got to stop with that phrase and just recognize that the conditions of learning are going to be different as we come back into our classrooms right now. But thinking about that, we have to, you know, look at our learners where they are. We have to accept their approximations. We have to think about the kind of employment and practice and and the expectations that we are coming into this with is, um, you know, we have to take kids where they are. So I think, you know, the conditions are going to be something that we can can rely on to help us to examine that space that we're creating as we come back into whatever version of school looks like um, for you, wherever you are. Deborah, thank you. I think that's so interesting to think about. Rather than framing it as learning loss, it's been lack of practice. So how can we really boost up employment? So for you, Brian, what are you thinking? Uh, as I listen to Deborah, I'm thinking if I was young researcher, uh, again, mm-hmm. young enough and energetic enough, I would first of all, admit that the conditions of learning is a theory, it's a hypothesis. And in all scientific enterprises, hypotheses are um, not considered to be permanent, they're always changing. And the virtual learning situations that we're faced with now haven't been researched. And what I would love to do is to do the a similar kind of anthropology on teachers who are using this virtual technology. I would like to gather as much data as I could about how they do it, the responses to the kids. I would like to interview them. I would like to analyze the uh, the um, things that I see and hear, just as I did in classrooms. It really is another classroom, but it hasn't been researched. It hasn't been researched in the sense that someone has gone in to try to identify what the variables are and how they work with each other. And I think that's what miss- That's what's missing. I'm, I'm a little apprehensive of trying to argue that you can lay the conditions over those um, virtual situations. Hopefully you can, but I'm hoping some young naturalistic inquirer will um, get the spirit, get the inspiration to say, um, let's see what's happening here. Let me go in and and do an ecological, um, anthropological analysis. And then from that, determine how the conditions uh, are relevant or applicable. I would hope they would be. And I think all of my thinking and theorizing and researching tells me that they would be universal, but we still need to do the research, I think. Wow, Brian, you just left us with so many questions, really thinking about, you know, gosh, what 
what is really happening? What what are those best practices that mm-hmm. allow students to learn within this technology-based environment that we have right now? So as we wrap up, it has been such an honor and pleasure to be able to have this conversation this morning. I'm wondering, um, what is your hope for 2021? Hmm. Well, I've, I've got lots of hopes. Um, I, I hope the vaccines work and we can we can get back to um, some kind of normalcy. But I also hope that um, teachers are given the opportunity to explore theories like the conditions of learning and not be forced to teach mandated programs which are based on what I think a questionable view of science and how it works. Um, I'd like them to be given multiple opportunities to explore their belief systems and share them and compare them and then ask themselves, how am I uh, putting these beliefs that I have in practice and what theory or theories are best um, suited to help me do that. Thank you. How about for you, Deborah? Oh, okay. This is when you start getting teary-eyed, you know, because it's, um, I think my hope is that we, you know, that we give kids grace and we don't, um, see, I get all teary-eyed when we start talking about this. I really do hope that we that we honor what a gift it is that we have in our profession, that we get to work with kids, that kids are, you know, they look to us for guidance. They look to us to, you know, be those important people in their lives. And so oh, I just look forward to being back in person with kids. You know, I, I you know, I get so excited when I get to see them uh, in a virtual classroom, but I'm so excited to be back with kids and, um, you know, and, and just, you know, I just hope as teachers that we take that moment and, and recognize that, that we've all been through this trauma. Everybody's been through it. And um, that these are, these are those moments. These are those moments that, you know, I say to teachers, you know, you're going to have stories to tell when you're 80. So think about that, right? You're going to have great stories to talk about because nobody's gone through this before. This is a, a first for everybody. Um, and just just recognize it for, you know, it's a history. You're living in history. And so what we want to do is is recognize that it's a first and it's hard. And and we've got to give grace to ourselves and give grace to kids as we as we come back into into this kind of work together. So I just, you know, say, you know, take a deep breath. Thank you. Thank you both so much for the information and the inspiration today. And I do hope that teachers find their way to Made for Learning and that they have an opportunity to dive into those conditions for learning, to think about their beliefs, and to really have that opportunity for reflection so that they can enact practices that allow students to develop understanding. So thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm really honoured to have been part of it. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. 
Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Wardhofer. We now provide customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and digital courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.